but moments that matter. Moments that matter. Moments that matter. Welcome to this latest edition of the Moments That Matter podcast series. I'm your host, Darren Clear, and today we're talking to Colette Smart, who is a psychologist, qualified teacher, speaker, and internationally published author. And Colette specializes in the area of teenage psychology. So naturally, that's what we're going to be talking about and dealing with today. As usual, a very wide-ranging conversation, but we do have a particular focus today on some of the issues of the day, including social media, access for teenagers and the best ways to monitor and respond to that, dealing with the current COVID-19 situation where we're sort of coming out of lockdown and teenagers are going back to school and how we should deal with that, along with a number of different other issues, including the value of mentoring to teenagers and how some of the practices that Colette teaches and espouses to parents can also be applied to today's contemporary workplace. So a lot to get through in the next hour, but sit back, make yourself a cuppa, and I hope you enjoy our conversation today with Colette Smart. So Colette, thanks for your time today. I'll just get you to start by giving me a brief rundown of your career to date, and I guess more importantly, some of your qualifications in the area of psychology before we get into the more in-depth discussion. Oh, thank you for having me. So uh, clearly, as I begin speaking, the elephant in the room is that I am South African background, but I've lived in Australia for oh, it'll be almost 18 years now. I've spent part of my career, my early career, obviously, in South Africa. I actually have two qualifications. So uh, I am a qualified teacher. I taught primary and then high school. And when I was studying education, fell in love with psychology as a subject and so went on to do a postgraduate um, degree in psychology uh, and then became a qualified psychologist, registered psychologist. I actually, fun fact, uh, when I was in South Africa, I actually taught languages and I was a Zulu teacher. So I actually can speak uh, Zulu quite fluently. Uh, I'm a bit rusty at the moment, but at some point, uh, my husband and I went and lived in the UK uh, and I worked with children in inner city London for a period of time. Uh, My husband at that stage had wanted to perhaps live in the UK. And I said, not on your life, take me somewhere warm. (laughs) So that's why we ended up uh, applying to Australia. And uh, I had two of my children in South Africa while all our visas were being processed and then came to Australia and uh, had a third child here. So I've got children who are, uh, my son is almost 21. I've got a daughter who's 18. She did her HSC last year. And then I've got a younger son who's 13. He's just started high school. I think my, my love for teenagers uh, ha- has been since, since my teaching years. And I always have this little saying where I say, once a teacher, always a teacher. And what happened is I just found that I couldn't get away from schools. And I ended up working as a, as a school psychologist for about 13 years of my career. I just love, I love the school setting. I love that uh, I can actually end up going into the classroom and doing psychoeducation with teenagers when I'm in a school. And, and I, so I think ha- having a background as a teacher is what uh, led me to a, down the path of um, having more of an interest in adolescent psychology and, and then also, you know, 
once I became a mum myself, um, uh, the, the teenage brain just fascinates me. I, I just love the way teenagers think. I love how they, they will challenge you. They've got such a passion. Uh, although in saying that, um, it's not always fun when they're doing it in your own home. But uh, yeah, I, I, I really do think teenagers get a bad rap. I think, you know, teenagers forever have always been told they're lazy, crazy, um, you know, painful, whatever it might be. But I really do think um, teenagers are, are quite incredible. I, I, I just think they're much more passionate about life than, than we think they are. Contrary to, to popular belief, they're not only interested in their phones. Um, a lot of what they do is driven by some of, some of their basic needs, really. You know, their, their need to connect and so on is what leads them to gravitate to their phones for connection. So yeah, so I think um, now that I, I live in Australia, I'm actually registered both with um, NESA, so the um, education, the Board of Education, uh, and I'm also registered with the with APRA as a psychologist. So I tend to now, uh, I'm not in a school at the moment, I tend more to consult now to schools and run seminars, and uh, I'm an, a published author, my book uh, ended up going into Europe and um, Commonwealth countries. Uh, I spend part of my um, year, usually when it's not COVID, I end up doing some traveling overseas and speaking overseas. And uh, the other part of my week, I actually lecture now at a um, at university. I do some undergraduate psychology courses. So I'm, I'm in the thick of uh, exam marking at the moment. So that's, that's kind of what my week looks like. Well, you're probably happy to have a break today then from uh from marking all those exams uh, yes i am <laughs> what is it would you say it's the most important stage of this uh, of psychology the adolescence sort of psychology uh i mean we spoke off air about the importance of nipping some problematic behaviors in in the bud at that sort of age group but i mean even from on a broader perspective i mean do you think that is the most important uh stage of our psychological development if you like uh to to get in and, and sort of to get ourselves into the right habits and things like that and the right mindset from, from those teenage years? Mm, I, I suppose it's hard for me to say it's the most, most important stage. I'm actually one of the, the courses that I teach at university. I've just um, developed curriculum for something called the developing child, where I actually look at children from birth to 12. Uh, and so it's fascinating because the brain does the biggest amount of growth or development in early, early stage, you know, up until about a year, two years old, where children are learning to sit and crawl and walk and talk. And then the next big change happens in the teen years. So, so it is, so I wouldn't say it's the most important. I think uh, all periods of childhood, you see great importance in the way we interact and stimulate our children's thinking and and connect with our children but yes I do think that the teenage years is it is a vital stage and there's so much particularly because children are beginning to want to separate themselves from us and in some ways we should let them and other ways they still need boundaries but there's so much of their own independence that is happening and yeah I think there's things that we can really see influence in young people's lives that can send them down one path or another. But in saying that children are still, I'm always quite conscious as I say words like that, I'm quite conscious of not 
wanting parents to feel guilty if they have an 18 or 19 year old who is actually they might feel like their child's going off the rails at the moment I'm so conscious of not making parents feel like it's their fault clearly when there's abuse um, and you know emotional physical abuse that's a different topic but even our, our young adults and our teenagers are still young people with their own minds and you can see families you know parents who bring up three children and one child will choose a different path for a period of time I think we must be very careful of not just blaming parenting for that uh, so yeah I'm, I'm always cautious um, I have a lot of time for teenage parents because I think it's a time when you can be quite lonely and feel quite guilty and judged and um, that's why I think I, I do my work because I want to support parents as much as I want to support teenagers. Well, I think an interesting way of looking at it is looking at what, what can you control as a parent, what can't you control? And there are certain areas of mental health that probably that may be out of your control as a parent uh, as a teenager goes on. What are some of the things, though, that you think parents can control, some simple things they can do that create some more psychologically safe environments for their teenagers? So I think we need to remember that although teenagers' bodies are big and, and they can look like adults, I mean, my 13-year-old is... is almost I, I think he's just got taller than me um much to his utter joy um but you can look at these bodies and they can sometimes look a little bit like they're an adult I mean your 16 year old young people can often look like adults already young adults but their brains are not so we need to remember that their prefrontal cortex is the last part of the brain to develop that's the part of our brains that is responsible for forward planning and impulse control and there's a lot of construction happening in the brain at that time and it is still the time when our young people need boundaries and the things that we we should be doing as parents is really still maintaining boundaries around technology with our teenagers remembering that there's a lot of influence that can come through their um, social media their online environments that we can sometimes feel we're competing with as parents and that is why boundaries are vital sleep is vital um, and boundaries with technology uh, we're seeing a chronically sleep deprived generation and uh, I often quote um, a combined study by um, Harvard Surrey Manchester um, and a, a whole range of universities all the sleep disorder specialists got together and they said, you know, we have a chronically sleep deprived generation and uh, humans have become supremely arrogant around thinking that we need less sleep than we did generations ago. But our brains haven't changed and our bodies haven't changed and we still need sleep and our young people need sleep. And our teenagers around year nine should still be having approximately nine and a quarter hours of sleep a night. So when our young people are lacking in sleep that's one of the first questions I ask young people who are struggling with their mental health and their parents what is your sleep like because if you're chronically sleep deprived you will feel depressed and anxious and young people who are struggling with mental health if you don't get enough sleep it exacerbates that and then of course keeping technology out of bedrooms to make sure that sleep is is happening to just check in on what's happening with your young person while they're on screens, having limits uh, with, with younger teens, particularly on the apps and technology that they can access, the type of shows that they're watching, because some of, some of that stuff is not 
they're not developmentally ready as much as they will tell you they are, they're not developmentally ready to process some of the stuff that's online as well. So uh, there's it's, some of it's just the basic things. And, and some of for some of us, and I'll say myself included, some of the technology boundaries have slipped a bit during COVID because our kids are online doing online schooling. So we've also got to be kind to ourselves as parents, but then know we may have to pull the reins in a little bit in a few weeks when uh, things kind of go back to... I don't even want to say the word normal, whatever that is, in terms of kids going back to schools. So it's some of those basic areas. Um, and I suppose we can get into what COVID's looked like for our teens because it's taken away some of the mental health support structures that are that are more naturally there. Yeah, well, it's quite topical at the moment. I mean, just bring you back to the, the social media aspect of it first. Like, how much have you seen the damage that... The, Social. I mean, personally, I haven't allowed my children to get onto any sort of social media platform until they're 16. But what sort of things do you see from a negative uh, and even potentially from a positive aspect of social media uh, with teenagers? And just to broaden on, on that point too, I mean, I've found it quite difficult to track uh, how whether my children are now at the age where they can get onto social media, but because of the homeschooling aspect, they have to be on a screen all day. So it's much more difficult to sort of police uh, how much time they're spending on that. So I guess a couple of things, are, what, what do you see from social media and how it affects teenagers? And what are some of the, is there any sort of particular way you've come across to best police that, uh, particularly in a lockdown situation? So it's, you know, we've gone from, um, a few years ago where we used to kind of really be negative about social media and young people you know it, originally when young people were on I mean there were things early on I'm trying to think what what they were the early ones were kick messenger that's still going around but our young people are using um, snapchat and instagram and tiktok's massive now with young people it's a little bit it, it's not black and white is why you can hear me hesitating because it's not as simple as young people are on social media so they will end up being depressed however we do know that uh, our young people I, I've spoken about it and put quite a bit in my book on the effects of social media on young people's mental health um, body image in particular uh, we see um, young girls and young boys who really struggle with body image issues um, because of the constant diet they are exposing themselves to, the visual diet of um, perfect bodies, celebrity bodies, uh, their friends' bodies who are highly doctored and curated and photoshopped uh, before they put something online, that we, we are seeing struggles with young people in that area. Also, in terms of the type of gaming and the content that they're, they're accessing, uh, we are seeing uh, concerns with that, particularly violent media. I actually teach a section at, at university on the effects of violent media on young people. And I also I say to my students, it's not as simple as, oh, my, my child plays violent video games, thus he or she will become um, you know, a, a mass murderer. It's that's not what the the data is saying, or the or the research says. But what we do see is this 
increase in aggressive thinking, feeling, and behaviors when children and young people have a constant steady diet of violent media or violent video games. So it's the aggression or a heightened arousal with their siblings or their parents or their teachers at school. They feel more irritable. They lash out a bit more, that kind of thing. But we also see on the positive side of social media, particularly in lockdown, we have seen the ability for, for young people to be connected with some of their friends. So my son, for example, who's in year seven, I mean, they barely had time to get to know people at school. And then, you know, for their first year of high school, and then they were cut off and shut down. And for him, we allowed a period of time in the evenings for him to jump on um, his PlayStation is in the lounge room, completely public where everyone is, where I'm cooking and my husband's cooking and so on. And he would get um, an, an hour in the evening, sometimes two hours in the evenings online with some friends. We could see what he was watching, who he was talking to, and they would chat and laugh and interact and talk about lots of other things than just the game. But I relented. I'm, and why I'm saying that is usually we're pretty strict about any kind of gaming during the week, um, during normal school time. But I realized for my son, he had absolutely no connection during the day. And so he needed some kind of social connection that was important for him. So that will change once, once lockdown finishes, we will uh, reshift some of the boundaries. But, uh, the, and so that's why I'm saying it's not black and white, but, and then you asked me about seeing what they're doing online and so on. So uh, I have absolutely no um, shares or anything in this company, but the, we use something called Family Zone, which is an absolutely brilliant app and device that is is a, a router that comes in and you kind of stream your uh, I, I'm not a, uh, I'm not technical but you kind of stream your wi-fi through this this router and what it does is it can lock down certain devices or certain profiles at certain times of the day or night so my son's um, wi-fi is is channeled to uh, his schoolwork and it will lock out social media while he's on schoolwork on his on his laptop. It will also shut down all his devices at certain times of night. And for some parents, they might listen to this and feel like, oh my goodness, that feels too hard. This is what we have to do in this generation of parents. Every generation has had their thing to deal with. And our generation is technology and that is part of parenting at the moment. And what I love about Family Zone is I don't have to figure out which apps are appropriate or inappropriate for certain ages because it, it is all done for me according to the age range that I put in for my child's device. So really what I'm saying is find for yourself software and hardware that you can put on your children's devices. Please don't wait until something happens before you do it. We always think not my child. And as soon as you think not my child, uh, that is when our children are most at risk. So it can be a bit of a juggling act, but once we find the right software and the right devices, it's just imperative that we have that before our teen kids hit the teenage years. Well, I think you said something important there too, when you, when you said your son gets on the game, it's in a public space where you can everyone can hear what's happening. Uh, how important is it to have that sort of open communications, not just within those conversations, but across the family dynamic as a whole uh, in terms of setting yeah. up those sort of psychologically safe environments. Yeah. And, and, you know, I often say it's not a, 
it's not a one-off conversation, um, particularly around content that your ch children might access. And it's not if my child will, will access or be exposed to pornography or exposed to bullying. We need to, to think of it as when my child is exposed. And, and your child will be. And so we need to be proactive and have some of those conversations early and often about what, what will you do when um, someone shows you something inappropriate or you feel uncomfortable. Children are particularly afraid that their parents are going to take away and ban everything if they come to us. So we need to say to them, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not planning to take everything away from you. I, I want you to be able to come and talk to me and then we will work out what to do together. Uh, so, so almost our children can't think of what to do in the heat of the moment. It's very difficult for a stressed brain to plan a way out or plan what to do when there's a time of stress or crisis. So we need to give children um, ideas for what to do before it ever happens so that when it does happen to them they know they can come to you and it's not a taboo topic and, and, and I also say to parents if you've messed up and you've yelled or you've um, freaked out about a topic apologize just go back and say to your child you know I never had to deal with this kind of thing when I was young my parents didn't have technology in the home I can't go to grandma and say what did you do when I wouldn't hand over my iPad? Because we didn't have iPads. <laughs> so be honest with your children and say, you know, I really didn't do that very well. I'm trying to learn this too. So can we, can we redo this? Can we do it over? And, and I won't react like that next time. I think a big part of parenting is particularly our generation is learning to say sorry. Uh, we're past generation of parents didn't often do that. So it's something we've got to learn. <laughs> Mm. I think it's also learning to know when to ask for help and when to when to seek some uh, you know further advice and further assistance. I mean, from my own personal point of view, uh, our youngest uh, child is transgender, and as he was going through the process of going from female to male, it was certainly outside my realm of understanding. And we tried to deal with ourselves as best we could for a few months until we just went, look, we don't know what we're doing. I think we're doing some of the wrong things here. And then we went out and, and actually got some cancelling services engaged within that. Now, it doesn't always have to, I guess, be around getting formal cancelling in, but how important do you think it is to to be able to sort of ask for advice where it's needed and bring in further support where it's needed? Well, I think, you know, we very quick to get coaches for our children if we see that they, you know, need something to do with sport or they need a, a coach for English lessons or, you know, approaching the teacher for extra assistance in maths. Yet still sometimes we, we shy away from reaching out for mental health support. Again, if our children had diabetes, we'd be reaching out for support. So we need to know our limits as parents. We, we can't be everything to our children all of the time. And there might be times in our parenting where we have tried everything and the best answer for our children is actually for all of us to go and get support for, for whatever it is your child is going through. They, you may need some other expert assistance to support you as parent, parents to love your child in the best way they need 
in the situation they're in. And, and as your, with your example, with um, your child who's transgender, the best way you could love your child was going and getting support and assistance so you could learn how to love them the best way your child needed to be loved. And, and I think whether it's, you know, your child thinking about transitioning or whether it's your child struggling with anxiety or depression, we need to work as parents to find ways to love our child the best way they need to be loved. And that is part of what seeking psychological coaching is all about. So, yeah, I, I, and I think we need to still change some of the narrative around seeking mental health support. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, and th this is what we've been trying to do now for a number of years. And obviously, you would be within your sector as well, trying to get people to think about physical health and mental health on the same sort of level. And still, there's certainly much more emphasis on physical health than mental health in terms of getting support and, and looking out for signs. Like if someone's limping around the house, it's very, very easy to see that something's wrong. Whereas some of the mental health stuff, maybe we sort of push aside or we don't take as seriously as we should. Absolutely. And we, you know, we, and, and that's why I often say parents of teenagers need support. I said that earlier on as we started chatting, because for many parents, not all, but for many parents, when you have a, a baby or a toddler, you will often go to babies groups or toddlers groups or mothers groups or parents groups. When there's birthday parties, all the parents go with when a child's two, you know, you don't drop your two or three-year-old off and say, see ya. But then what happens is the parents end up having support because you have other parents to chat about whatever's going on with your toddler or your preschooler. But suddenly when you're, your children are in high school, uh, I always encourage parents when there's a party, go in and just meet the parents. Don't just drop your teenagers off. But parents generally don't stay at teenagers parties. And so there, there is less support even with other adults to talk to people about what you might be going through in your home or with your teenager and yeah so so you're right I think we need to be um be kinder to teenage parents of teenagers and and reach out and support them more yeah I mean look just again on a personal note I mean we had a community camp earlier this year for uh, 12 and 13 year old girls and we're just in the process of doing a survey and getting some details back on that but the number one thing that people got out of it was the uh, the, the sort of network the support network that they created for the parents to meet each other and spend the weekend together uh, because obviously they're all going through something similar and they can sort of bounce ideas off each other and sort of feel like they're not alone and, and feel like they've been seen uh in whatever struggles or whatever situation that they're dealing with and obviously one of the big situations we're dealing with now is is COVID so we'll, we'll get into that now and I want to I guess I was looking over this before we sort of started and a lot of the questions I had when we started preparing for this was sort of when we're in lockdown but I guess now we need to start getting our minds towards transitioning out of lockdown but, so, but just quickly on the lockdown side of things, I mean, if, if parents are dealing with kids that are homeschooling and you're in a lockdown situation, what's some advice, some sort of general advice and maybe some tips that you would give parents uh, to deal with children and teenagers in that situation? So I think one thing we need to remember is, uh, I think I said earlier, some of the support structures that our teenagers rely on uh, to buoy or support their mental health, those structures are taken away when they're in lockdown. And so 
um, when we look at, at, at a brain in, um, in lockdown in particular, there's been some fairly recent uh, papers out on this. We actually see diminished cognitive function. We, we have poor, poorer memory and poorer attention span. So our attention is, is reduced. Uh, our problem solving abilities are reduced. Everything kind of seems very samey. You know, there's no novelty because we're in Groundhog Day over and over again. And so when our young people have uh, or struggle with depression and anxiety, um, this also impairs memory function anyway. But the social isolation then takes uh, a lot of our social cues away from us that help us with memory. We don't, our young people don't have the friends uh, and physical contact that they rely on. Physical contact builds things like oxytocin and um, a whole lot of these wonderful neuro, neurochemicals that actually help our brains function well. So in saying all of that, it's important for us to look at our teenagers and remember that some of that is going on in their brain and they will be struggling more than they usually do. And so generally we need to actually begin thinking about what is it going to look like in two weeks or four weeks when our children are back in school, knowing that some of our anxious children, some of them might have been more comfortable in lockdown because they don't have to deal with their social anxiety. They don't have to go into a shopping center or ask for directions or walk into a classroom full of people. And so they've kind of got a bit comfortable. So for some of them, their anxiety levels are going to be raised once they start school again in a few weeks. I actually said on a recent radio interview this week that I think we need to almost be treating going back to school in the next week or two as though it's a brand new year of school. If we as parents can think of it as a brand new year of school, we will actually perhaps be a little bit more com compassionate when we see our children struggling rather than saying, well, go on, get on with it. You know, you knew these people six months ago. For some of our children, it's going to feel all strange and weird because they haven't been around some of these kids and they were barely in class with them. And now they have to almost re-get to know some people. If you're in, your children are in different LGAs to, the, to their friends, they would not have been able to see them face-to-face -face or physically. And although social media has been great for some connection. There's nothing quite like physical connection for our young people. So it's really just preparing for that. The Australian Psychological Society actually has a, a kind of run sheet, if you will, on what to look for um, or what to, how to prepare about a week before your child goes back to school, the day before, and even the morning of. Uh, so there's things we can do to prepare our children mentally, as well as getting routines in place the night before and in the morning. Uh, in particular, I think of my own child who has been only having to get up at eight o'clock because he only has to kind of log in at 22 to nine every day. And so their sleep patterns are different and they're going to suddenly have to get up earlier because of public transport. So we need to start thinking of shifting bedtimes and getting routines back in place, uniforms. So just really as parents mentally thinking of that and talking positively, not in a, in a trite kind of cheesy way, but talking positively about some of the aspects of going to, back to school. And then also thinking about asking our children, what are they concerned about? And 
asking them, what can I do to support you? Is there anything you need? Even if they say no, they will know that you're thinking of them and you are wanting to support them and letting them know that as soon as they think of something that where they may need support in going back to school, um, you're there for them. So it's really just thinking of that. And if you think your child is really going to struggle, that is when I would say to parents, preempt that and begin contacting the school about a week out and letting them know that you're concerned about your child and asking how they can support you in getting your child tra um, to, to transition back into the school routines um, more smoothly. Well, that, that makes me feel good because we've just changed our children's routines uh, in, in preparation for them to go back to school. We started getting them out of bed a little bit earlier. So you've just reiterated <laughs> why we did that. And we've also, uh, we've touched base with the school counsellor and just said, look, uh, particularly Adam, our, our younger son, look, just keep an eye on him as he transitions back to school uh, and make sure that, that that's as smooth a process as possible. I mean, you mentioned there the importance of routine. I mean, maybe elaborate on that. I mean, how important is getting back into a routine as quickly as possible in, in helping this transition back to school? So routine is, is a very important part of, of our mental health. As soon as somebody struggles with anxiety, depression, daily stress, our stress levels go up as soon as our day-to-day -day routines get out of whack. Now, what's interesting, though, is in, in lockdown, everything's been very routined, um, sometimes too much so. And we, we do need novelty. Our brains absolutely need novelty, um, particularly the hippocampus, the brain, the part of your brain that encodes memory into long-term storage, actually struggles when there's no distinctiveness day-to-day. But uh, even in a, in a school day, there is novelty built into it because you have different periods of the day and, you know, sport will be structured slightly differently and there might be a different um, assembly or whatever it might be. There's things in the school day that naturally create novelty, but there's still routine and structure even within the school day, you know, with, with the timetable and so on. And so that is why I say to parents, for some children, we're going to be now changing the routine from lockdown routine to back to school routine, and that can cause stress for some kids. And that is why I'm, I love hearing that you've already changed some of that so that the transition isn't suddenly, today we're in lockdown routine and tomorrow school routine, and there's this, actually it's a, it's a massive shift for some kids. So it's actually gradually now beginning to change the bedtimes, getting things prepared for school and getting back into the school routine. But then once school routine begins, we need to get that up and running pretty quickly because it actually serves our children better once they're back into a more stable routine going forward. And so, yep, routine is very good for um, children who struggle with stress and anxiety because it it creates almost a sense of safety. Routine is good for our brains. So, yeah, I, I love hearing that you're already starting to think ahead to that. And what signs do you think parents should be aware of and keep an eye out for as we do this transition that maybe you, your child's struggling a bit as they head back into school? So it would be your day-to-day -day things. Parents know their children best. And so when you see things that are out of the norm for your child, so it could be, 
sleeping difficulties. Uh, it could be changes in eating patterns. It could be your child withdrawing more, being more tearful, or just, uh, you know, your child may not be more tearful. They actually might be more irritable uh, or outbursts, anger outbursts. Uh, I often talk about the anger, out, uh, sorry, the anger iceberg. Uh, and we often only just see the little tip of the iceberg, which looks like a child exploding with anger. But underneath, we know the iceberg, uh, you know, in the iceberg image, there's so there's a much bigger part of the iceberg under the water. And for a lot of our young people who are stressed or anxious or depressed, there's a whole lot of stuff underneath that in that iceberg, which is things like uncertainty or embarrassment or awkwardness or fear. And it just often bubbles up as an outburst of anger. And so sometimes asking ourselves when my child has a meltdown, what is actually, what was happening before that for them? And so in the heat of the moment, when your child is having an anger outburst, that's not the time to address what's going on underneath. Sometimes we need to let them go and calm down and quieten down uh, safely somewhere, uh, listen to music, relax. And then afterwards we have those discussions about what was going on for you under, uh, before that? What's going on underneath? Are you feeling afraid or anxious? Teaching children to recognize all of their emotions is such an important part of mental health. Sometimes we just think of emotions as happy and sad and angry. I always say happy, mad, sad. And that we, our children are so much more than that. And for our children to be, be emotionally literate or emotionally intelligent, we need to sometimes help them with the words to describe what is actually going on for them. So it's keeping an eye on real changes to who you know your child is. And so it's, I can't say it's a one size fits all because some children naturally like to have downtime after school and chill for a while in their rooms. But if a child is usually chatty and outgoing and then suddenly they're retreating to their rooms after school every day and you go, whoa, something's different here. That's to me the, the red flags for your child. Uh, and, you know, if children aren't wanting to get back into sport once say community sport or community activities begin again, or they're not reaching out to friends, all of those would be signs that something is, is troubling your child. And I guess it comes back again to, to being able to have those open and honest conversations about uh, these issues as they arise, you know, to, to make sure you get to the bottom of it. Let, let's look a bit more sort of broader at, at, at the COVID the COVID situation itself. I mean, because we're seeing now with the recent statistics just how much of a crisis this is creating in terms of the mental health of teenagers where we've got emergency department visits are up 31% in 2020. So that's last year for self-harm and, and suicidal ideation, ideation, I should say, in children and teenagers. That's compared to 2019. Do you see, or what long-term effects, if any, do you see coming from the past two years that we've sort of spent in and out of this lockdown and dealing with this COVID crisis for teenagers? And what are some of the things you think we can do to alleviate them? It's so difficult to talk about the long term because uh, a lot of us in this mental health field predicting that some young people are going to struggle when they come out of this, but we don't know for sure because we've never lived through a pandemic in, in our generation. And so we do know that for some people, this is going to have a trauma experience. And, and for a lot of us, our concerns have been for young people who say 
have been rather locked in rather than locked down. And when I talk about locked in, I mean um, locked into um, abusive home environments, uh, places where they can't escape or places where uh, their parents have perhaps struggled to put food on the table because they've been out of work. Uh, so we, we are going to have to look at how do we support young people coming out of this trauma-inducing period. I, I mentioned before some young people who have struggled with social anxiety. Lockdown has been in some ways easier for them because they haven't had to confront some of their struggles uh, interacting with other people or going to ask for uh, a bottle of milk at the shop. Uh, they haven't had to put in the homework that, say, their psychologist would have given them to overcome some of their social anxieties or their fears. So they, there will be some work um, after this. I often, it's interesting because we know that um, some of the reports are, even pre-COVID, um, you know, we often saw young women, uh, the reports of young women struggling with anxiety or depression higher than boys and men. However, I always say when I, when I do talks um, to parents, I say, you need to remember that some of those statistics are skewed in the sense that uh, one of the leading causes of death for, for men, young men, is, is suicide. We know that um, suicide was the leading cause of death pre-COVID for Australian men between 15 and 44 years old. That is more than double the national road toll. So more young men are dying by suicide than um, car accidents, which tells me that a lot of our young boys or young men don't talk about their mental health concerns. And so uh, there have been some reports that uh, completed suicides have um, gone down during the, the pandemic and they, we don't know why. There's a question around, is it because there has been more financial support from um, the government? We don't know. Is it because parents are, are home with their young people and so they're uh, more able to watch them and check on them? But then we also know the statistics that you spoke about how there have been huge amounts of young people calling uh, kids helpline and calls to hospitals and check-ins at hospitals uh, for self-harm. So it's really mixed in terms of knowing what, what is this going to look like in two months, six months, a year's time. And so we just need to be prepared. The way we deal with mental health won't be different. We just need to be prepared in being available to support our young people and perhaps just being more aware that that there could be higher reports or a, a higher number of young people require, requiring support could help us as parents be more open to that our children might be struggling and just looking for those struggles and those changes in our young people. Uh, I do know that among my colleagues there is a, a very big waiting list for uh, people in general, not just young people, but all areas of psychology. There's quite a big waiting list at the moment for people getting into psychology or to see psychologists um, because of the strain of lockdown on adults as well. So uh, if you are thinking of that your child may perhaps need to see somebody, I would recommend that people begin to put out feelers now and make appointments. Um, so that you don't have to wait too long once your child decides they're ready to see somebody. And I think if there is a silver lining 
to all this, it is that people are much more focused on mental health now. I mean, do you get that sense as well? I mean, you just said there, there's a there's longer waiting lists uh, for cancelling and things like that. I mean, do you get that sense as we come out of this, people will be a bit more focused on mental health than probably what they were a few years ago? Yes, I do. I, I, and I think what I think has come out of this, which has been a wonderful positive, is telehealth. Uh, you know, prior to lockdown, a lot of the, you know, Medicare and the, the powers that be were really dragging their feet on actually allowing telehealth and, uh, you know, Medicare rebates for telehealth. And I love the fact that there, there's so much more accessibility to psychologists. And I, I'm thinking particularly of people in regional areas who might only have one psychologist who visits once a month to the area. I, I know, you know, people in regional areas were saying, it's so difficult. My child needs to see a psychologist, but there's one person that comes here once in a blue moon and it's so hard to get them in. Now, what's wonderful is some young people might prefer to see someone face to face. And so that visiting psychologist could potentially see the young person. The young person becomes familiar, more comfortable, and then they're much happier to talk on, on Zoom or online um, when they're with the young people um, because they've got a relationship with them, which is fantastic. And so, you know, it's a wonderful thing that, that we now have telehealth um, and also young people who couldn't access a psychologist prior to this, they actually can now um, access anybody uh, around the country really for, for telehealth. So there's really a lot of positives that's in terms of, of access that I think has just sped up um, the need that's been there for a long time. Um, if that's one positive that's come out of this, that's it. And just to pull on another thread of something that you mentioned uh, about boys and, and uh, the different statistics there. I mean, how conscious should we be around gender as we're dealing with, with teenage mental health from, from both a parenting point of view and from your point of view uh, from the psychology aspect? So that's... That's interesting because, um, I mean, we know that girls, uh, I've mentioned the st statistics on boys and men um, in terms of suicide, and we know that girls, uh, we see more eating disorders diagnosed in girls, um, other than the binge eating disorder, we actually see kind of equal prevalence, but in we, we see actually about 63% of people with eating disorders in Australia are female. So there, there would be some areas that we we would see differences but I have to say I also you know in the past there were things that we would say which we now know were, were absolute and utter stereotypes in the past we would say girls would struggle with this and boys would struggle with that and they were just stereotypes in terms of emotion and some things that we need to treat young people for are just human human things you know it's, it's all about looking at our young people as being humans and you know our young boys so in particular the, the stereotype I'm thinking of is you know that our grandparents would say you know boys shouldn't cry and, and that kind of thing and now we know that's utter nonsense um, we actually know that uh, it, it's vital for boys and girls to be able to express their emotions it's vital for all people um, to express their emotions because it's healthy for their mental health so I think in some areas, um, this, I'll be honest, this is not my area of specialization. And so when a parent would come to me with, with a child who needed to see somebody, um, say with gender dysphoria, I would recommend that you find somebody who 
this is their area of specialization and they can work with your child in the best way that is, as I said earlier, with parents who are loving their child the best way they can. Do your homework around the, the right mental health expert for your child is, is what I would say. Mm. And one of the things I, I mean, just from a personal point of view, I used to, I do a lot of sports coaching and I used to coach uh, young boys and I've also been involved in different groups. One of the things I used to do and still do to this day, whether I'm around a group of men or even dealing with the boys, is just ask them, when was the last time you cried? And I, then I'll yeah. go into my story of the last time I cried. And it's usually some soppy movie or something or a book I've read or whatever it might be. And that just starts the conversation with people say, oh, it's not, it's not uh, something to be ashamed of to say that you cried uh, on something. And then it sort of starts a bit more of an honest conversation that way. And just on the, on the when you're talking about the females and, and the body image, uh side of things i mean that's something that i would struggle i think to deal with because i would have no point of reference uh for my own personal sort of life and and, and experience what advice would you have if you sort of feel like uh your teenage daughter is having some body image issues what, what are some of the steps that parents can take in that situation so uh, this is something i actually spoke about in my book because we we tend to think that body image issues is only a girl's girl's problem um, and actually our young boys struggle with body image um, as well and and boys often don't talk about it because they they think that it's a girl's problem and so they tend to not um, open up with when when they're struggling I mean boys will often struggle differently uh, in terms of boys will often talk about six packs and um, muscles or size and so on uh, but boys often don't realize that even on social media, a lot of male bodies are photoshopped and changed. And there, there was a big study I talk about in my book in the UK where boys were actually quite shocked when they realized that men's forms are altered on, on even on movies, um, not just on still images. And so for parents to actually normalize that boys do um, there are many boys and men who struggle with body image and so on. And, and I love that you spoke about how you, you speak about emotion because it normalizes for young people that adults, both men and women can have, um, it's important for men to cry, but, it, but that men can also have struggles and women can have struggles that people used to traditionally think were men's issues. Uh, and the more us as adults talk about it and normalize it, the more comfortable our young people will be able to talk about um, what they're feeling. Well, and, and again, it comes back to open and honest communication, doesn't it? I mean, extrapolating that out, I mean, how important is it for society in general? I mean, you think about the contemporary workplace, for example, to have those honest conversations and just create an environment where... Uh, that is encouraged and, and not sort of frowned upon. You look, I think I, th I think that's something that that we're learning. But I, I think a lot of workplaces are doing this really well, or, or are attempting to do this really well now. Uh, there's a lot more focus on uh, mental health. Uh, you know, my, my husband, for example, is in a quite a big corporate organization, and they got a lot of the um, the staff to do a mental health first aid course uh, and so it it really a, a lot of corporates are, are just becoming a lot more proactive about 
uh, talking about mental health, talking about um, emotion, talking about um, gender stereotypes, um, racial stereotypes and so on, things that um, just were never spoken about in the past. And I think it's vital that, that corporates continue to do that. But I think a lot of them are, are really doing a lot better. Well, then thinking about it from the point of view of staff and they're coming back from working at home and reintegrating to the workplace. I mean, what are some of the things you think that the businesses and workplaces can do to help or facilitate that process? I think for businesses and corporates, I think it's really important to get uh, outside support and outside assistance if you're not sure. So you may not have a big HR department who specializes or, or knows uh, the right, the correct direction for mental health. That's when I would say, um, look at uh, people outside who can come in and support your workers who are who are parents who might want support in parenting or might want support around mental health. I think companies would be quite surprised if they're not doing it how much uptake there would be. Uh, for example, I did a, a lunch and learn prior COVID, but I did a lunch and learn at, at a, a corporate um, organization in the city. And I think they, they, they thought they might get about 10 people coming, giving up their lunchtime. They had over a hundred people rock up and it was just to talk about parenting. Uh, and I think there's a lot more interest than companies would realize. And I think that's part of companies feeling cared for and um, feeling like their, their bosses are interested in more, more than just what they can bring to the table in, in terms of the bottom line, that their companies actually care about them as people. And I think that's a way that corporates can do that. They can show we care about you as a whole person. We know that some of you are parents, some of you are single, some of you are um, struggling with certain mental health, areas of mental health, and we actually want to care about you in many areas, not just in what you can bring financially to the company. Yeah, and that sort of that, that goes to the sort of serotonin release, doesn't it, within the mind that you've been seen. We are, and, and, and that's important when you, whether you're a parent of a teenager or you're managing staff uh, as an organisation to say that someone's been seen and, and we respect what you're doing and we understand that what challenges you're going through are very important to someone's mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think there is, if, if there's any blessing that's come out of COVID, I think, you know, as much as lockdown working from home has been difficult and uh, there is something to say about how lockdown has been difficult in terms of connecting at work and, and the need for personal connection. There's been something about how we can actually work from home more than we thought we could. And, and there are, you know, that your workers don't kind of just disappear and um, not do any work when they're working from home. Companies have been I think we've all been blown away about, about how productive people actually are working from home. So I think we've learned a lot about work-life balance. And I really hope we don't go, go back to the old way pre-COVID, you know, the, the, the long corporate hours that we actually can look at, at balance and so on and see what, take some of the things we've learned during COVID and continue doing those when we, when we come out of lockdowns again. 
Yeah, I think it certainly highlighted the, the the value of flexible working arrangements and sort of it's it's taken away. I think someone said to me that the, the C or B scene mentality uh, that that you sort of have around the office where I've got a I've got to sort of be seen by someone or see that person during the day. You don't necessarily have to physically see them. You can just uh, see by their output um, of, of work that they're yep. doing, whether they're in the office or at home, uh, how valuable that will be. Yep. Uh, so final question. Colette before we let you get back to uh to marking those exams which I'm sure you're looking forward to uh wh where would you see where would you hope to see this sort of area of, of teenage psychology uh, in sort of five to ten years time and wh where do you sort of see this this developing I think in the in the next five years we need to see more availability around mental health in schools I think um, not every teenager loves going to see their school counselor but uh, I think we need more school counsellors in schools. I also, one of my, my visions is more of a mentoring program. Um, I actually go into schools and do uh, seminars and talks for young people. And then I often say to the schools, I think uh, I'm talking myself out of a job, but I, I don't actually believe that, a, that an adult coming in to talk at a school uh, in a one-off is the most effective. I think having mental health experts train teachers who are already there or school counselors or coaches who are already there in the school to be mentors to young people I think that is where we're going to see long-term benefits because young people already naturally have a relationship with certain coaches certain teachers they trust them more naturally they trust them more naturally because they see them day to day rather than some one-off female or male who's coming to do some our talk and the, the, the kids have forgotten it by the next day or the next month. Uh, so I would love to see a lot more coaching and mentoring programs, um, rites of passage programs. Uh, I've got a, a colleague, a friend of mine, he does incredible work uh, in, in terms of rites of passage. He, he actually runs a, a program called The Right Journey that is run in different schools around Australia. And he's got a, an entire program he's devised uh, he is a qualified teacher and it runs for the entire year nine year the time when we know that young people are um, struggling the most with trying to figure out who they are and his premise behind his program is that a lot of young people we've kind of lost that idea of rites of passage that I think a lot of traditional cultures did indigenous cultures um, still do really well uh, at we've kind of lost that in, in the West. And for our, a lot of our young people, I think coming of age means going and, you know, getting smashed at a pub and things that are, are not always safe or things that are, are not helpful to them because they're looking for something that says, oh, now you're an adult. And some of these programs are just beautiful ways of transitioning children from childhood into adulthood in safe ways and adventurous ways and um, I, I think that's my wish is that we would do more of that and having these mentors around our young people who can guide them into adult years rather than them just stumbling into adulthood I think that's what I would love to see more of where we actually step in and lean into our teenagers years more than step away and we actually need adults who are actively involved in those roles to do it not accidentally fall into those roles 
um, that's what I'd love to see more of. And just to extrapolate on that, I mean, I'm involved here locally in my community with some mentoring programs, but I find that there's a sort of natural tendency to have mentoring programs from men to, to young boys and from, and from the ladies to the young girls. But I think you need to mix that up a little bit too. And you need to be able to see, you know, young boys see strong female role models in their life as much as, as, as strong male role models and vice versa for the girls. I mean, would you agree with Absolutely. that as well? Absolutely. I think we, we need um, boys to hear from, from women what it feels like, what it looks like to be a, a, a woman in the world who perhaps is struggling with harassment, um, you know, everything that a, a woman might feel a man or young men or young boys should know or should hear. It's, it's very difficult for a man to tell that to a boy. Uh, equally, though, I do think um, um, young men need men around them to teach them what a good man looks like. But yeah, equally, I think women or young women need to hear from from men in their lives. And um, also they need to look at what a good man looks like. Uh, so they know what it looks like when they come across bad men um, or unhealthy men in or unhealthy relationships. So, yep, mm. absolutely. I agree with you. OK, well, look, thanks for your time today, Colette. Just finally, where can people find uh, more about yourself? Thanks. So my book is called uh, They'll Be OK. 15 conversations to help your child through troubled times and uh, it's in all all major um, bookstores and um, online and my website is uh, raisingteenagers.com.au and I also have a Raising Teens podcast that I um, just have dealt with some of the, the main topics that parents ask me about. So thanks again to Colette for her time today. Once again, the book is They'll Be Okay and you can find Colette online at colettesmart.com and also catch her own podcast, Raising Teenagers, on all the usual podcast outlets. A lot to take away from today, but the major takeaway for me was just reiterating the importance of having honest and open conversations with all people that are involved in your life. And obviously your immediate family are the most important with that, but that should really be able to branch out into your workplace, into the community, and really into people that you come into contact with on a daily basis. And the more we can encourage these open and honest conversations with one another, I think the better we'll be, and the more comfortable people will be to talk about things like their mental health challenges that they may be going through and seek out the support networks that they need to potentially get through some troubled times. So I thank you again for your time today and I look forward to joining you again with some interesting conversations on our Moments That Matter Network very soon.